James chapter 5 today, please. I'm going to hit a more comfortable topic today. All right? We're going to talk about patience. <laughs> Most people, when you say money, they panic. You say patience, and boy, that's a whole different one, isn't it? Patience. Oh, wow. What a topic this will be. In James 5, verse 7, all the way down to verse number 11, we are going to introduce the topic of patience. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the word that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Heavenly Father, we have quite a subject in front of us as we study this chapter in the book of James. We are being confronted by some pretty challenging topics, and this one, like the last one, will really reveal much about us. And I pray as we go through this, we are not setting up defenses in our hearts, we have not caked on another layer of callousness, that we are not quick to dismiss what we hear from your word, but may it penetrate deep into our hearts. May we see with clear vision the reflection in the mirror as we examine our faith and test it according to that which you which you are describing here in this chapter. May ours truly be a living faith. And as we study today, help us with it, Lord. We're, we're just your children. We, we love belonging to you. We thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing in our hearts and how you're working with us and changing us. Sometimes that may not seem very quick on our side. But we have much to learn about the way you do things. So help us today with this topic of patience today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we walk through this section of examining living faith, I've already given you the outline a couple of times here for the book of James, but mostly it's from the chapters 2 through 5. We have uh, the main points of application. What faith looks like, what faith does not look like. What, what kind of faith is this? Not, not just some dusty doctrinal statement. Uh, I'm not opposed to dusty doctrinal statements, by the way. I like doctrinal statements. I think we have to say what we believe. Write it down on a piece of paper. But I think we have to live what we believe, too. Not just be... Those who hear the word, but those who do it. That's what James is saying. And so, what kind of faith is it that operates, that's activated, that's motivated, that's living? What kind of faith is that? 
Well, he gives us in these chapters those things that are are that which we should react away from and things we should respond to positively. And I'm just going to emphasize the three things that he says especially are true of living faith. And in our outline, one is in chapter 2, 14 through 26, it produces works. Faith must have fruit. It must. Because if there's no evidence of that, then we're right to assume it's dead. It must produce fruit. So, faith does produce works. We we'll see that sometime. We might go back to chapter 2. Chapter 3, 1 through 18, faith does produce self-control. Boy, do we need it in our world today. Self-control. We're not going down that topic either. That's in chapter number 3. And then, here in chapter 5, starting in verse 12, notice I read up to verse 11. But starting in verse 12, it brings us to our main point. That is, faith produces reliance on God. It produces that. Now, that's a funny thing, because faith is supposed to be dependence on God, but faith also builds that dependence. I hope you realize that we're not stagnant in this thing called dependence. We are to be growing in it. And boy, I can't even imagine how many topics or compartments of my life still is challenged right in that department. (laughs) Depend on God. Trust God. Rely upon God. I think that's a good lesson for all of us. That's where we're going in this chapter especially. And so I believe all of these things we're working through in chapter 5 are bringing us to that point. That we must rely on God. We must depend upon Him. So that's what faith is building toward and that's our topic of chapter 5. We must have an active faith in dependence on God. An active faith. We, we must have a vibrant faith in dependence on God. We, we must have an exciting faith. And I'm going to say that on purpose, alright? Get bored to tears with Christianity. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. The things of God ought to excite you. And growing dependent on Him ought to excite you. I think that's part of faith. But I'm going to call it one more thing too. I'm going to call it legitimate faith. There's a word I'm working on right now in my thoughts. And my family could tell you this because we kind of ponder some thoughts on there. I've been trying desperately to come up with a title for a theology because everyone else gets titles. Right? You've got covenant theology, you've got this theology, all these other theologies. And I said, well, where's the one that fits exactly what I want? You know, being, everybody's got to have something, right? And so I thought, well, some people say, well, dispensational, well, dispensational theology, it's not exactly there because dispensationalism is a tool that brings you to a point of theology where you say, this is what it means. Right, so I said, well, I've got to have a name for this thing. So I've been working on it. And right now my working name is Legitimate Theology. You know, when you say that, guess what the other people think all of a sudden? Uh-huh. Oh, boy, is he really separating. Uh, legitimate Theology. Here's the definition of legitimate. Being exactly as purposed and not false. 
Legitimate means being right, or acceptable, or real. Legitimate means to show that which is fair, or reasonable. Legitimate means to show or affirm that this is justified and has merit. We use legitimate in a lot of other circles too. But I think that if we're trying to study theology, let's throw that word out there because theology is man's view of God. It's the best man can do. All right, man's opinions, man's views. They, of course, they base it on God's word. They're supposed to anyway. Uh, but it does have one drawback to it, in that if it is based on what man thinks, it's got man's errors. <laughs> and that's also a problem that comes with it, because man's fingerprints are all over it, with opinion and bias and mistranslation and misapplication. Um, each view claims biblical support. Each view believes itself to be correct. It's kind of like political parties anymore. You ever notice what's going on in our world? We divide because of doctrines still yet today, we believe, and doctrines we don't believe, and we put people in little theological cubby holes and say that's what they are, and that's what they are, and that's what they are. Where does one get the privilege of calling their theology legitimate? Who gives the authority to put that kind of a term with their theology? I believe, really, that it comes from the vantage point of viewing it. And here's what I mean. If theology is held to the standard of man, it will be worthless. Because the standard of man produces nothing of eternal value. Nothing. If theology is held in the standard of God and His Word, then it's anchored to the very thing that lasts forever. See the difference? So here's the struggle with it all. How do we come up with that which we believe, that which we live by, and make it exactly as God purposed it? So it's not false. How how do we come to a place where we confirm this to be the recognized principles and the accepted rules and the standards of God's Word? Because here's the truth. God never contradicts it. Truth. God is truth. And His Word is truth. So He won't ever contradict that, will He? That's a reality. Can we label it as right, if God says it? Can we label it as real, if God says it? Can we look at it and say, it's even fair and reasonable? It's justified? It has merit? Okay, I'm just talking about some concept I'm working on in theological circles, and how do I think? Let's put it down into faith now. Let's just move it into the category of faith. What is legitimate faith then? Legitimate faith is that faith which is exactly as God purposed it. It's not falsely built on man's purpose. 
It's God's purpose. It conforms to the recognized principles, rules, and standards of God's Word. Here's the thing. Your faith is not a designer faith that you can make it however it makes you happy. Alright? Faith is not adjustable to man's opinion. God has determined what faith is. He said so in His Word. I think that's pretty challenging for us then to come up to that and not do it our way. That's legitimate faith to me. Legitimate faith is right, and it's real, and it's fair, and it's reasonable, and it's justified, and it has merit. That's my play with a little word called legitimate. Living faith is dependent on God. Living faith is active. So active faith is dependent on God. Vibrant. It's full of life. It's more than just it it exists. Vibrant faith is dependent on God. Exciting faith is dependent on God. Legitimate faith is dependent on God. That's where I'm going to take you this morning as we go into this section. Because you say, but pastor, it's all about patience. How did you go down this road? Guess what patience is tied to? Faith. It's tied to faith. It's tied to dependence. We've already talked about the problems in the early part of the chapter about the rich one. He identifies here these rich individuals who are self-indulgent, who are uh, um, dependent upon their own wealth, hoping somehow that that's going to make them stand before God. But the problem is, they've so self-regarded themselves in it, they have stolen from the people that work for them. And we saw that. We worked through it. That was kind of a frustrating handful of verses to begin with here, because they're defrauding their employees and living off their wealth, and their actions are known by the Lord, and those are issues that will be brought up in the judgment day. Those are all true. And so we walk through that and we say, okay, that's a problem for the wealthy, right? That's their problem. Doesn't affect me at all, does it? Or does it? There's somebody else in the story. Verse number one through verse number six. There's somebody else in the story. Not just the rich, but also the ones who have been defrauded, right? They're there too. They're struggling over something too. The fact is that they weren't paid. How does that make you feel? You've been cheated. How does that make you feel? You want justice. How does that make you feel? What's the first phrase of chapter or verse seven? Be patient. Oh. Wait a minute. This this gets personal suddenly. Because he's talking to the brethren. This is a test, really. We, we wrestle with injustice. I know we do. I know we do. If you read the newspaper or check the news online or something like that every day, you have to wrestle with these things. Terrible things. What happened yesterday in Pittsburgh? Just frightening that things like these happen all the time. Injustice all over the map. All over the map, and we hate it when it gets so close to home. 
we're not the only ones who wrestle with it. Those who were in the Bible wrestled with it a lot too. There were so many instances of injustice in God's word, examples of it. But some of the things that the psalmist would write about in the book of Psalms. Uh, Lord, what's going on? <laughs> I paraphrase. This is terrible. Look at how they're treating me. What are you going to do about it? Those kind of psalms. Psalm 73 is a good example. If you want to follow me, I'm going to read through that and listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 73. He asked one simple question, basically. Why do you let these guys live? That's his big question. They are so terrible. Why are they still here? Look at this, Psalm 73. I'm going to start in verse 3 and just read for a little bit. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men. They're not plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues parade through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And there is knowledge with the, is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and I washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long, and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. This man wrestled, didn't he? With what he could see going on in the world. Didn't understand how these people still could have such ease. And then he says, finally the day came when I walked into God's place and I looked at it from his eyes. I said, oh, oh, I understand now. So many times I read this in the Psalms. Go over to Psalm 84. I want to show you something really quite incredible here. In Psalm 84, we have this contrast, if you will, between that and the next Psalm. And you're going to feel it like, like the moment when you're, you're panting for a cold drink of water and then finally you get it. One of those refreshing moments. Psalm 84 to 85 does this. Psalm 84 No, 83, sorry. 83 to 84. Oh God, Psalm 83. Do not remain quiet, he says. Do not be silent. And oh God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together in one mind. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hegrites, 
Gibor and Ammon and Amalek and Philistia, the inhabitants of Tyre and Assyria, has also joined with them, that they have become a help to the children of Lot. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrents of Tishon. That's a great story. Remember that story? We did that the other night. It's a great story. Be like tent pegs and things like that. Uh, verse number 10 who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung as for the ground, that make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zamuna, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, like the flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Wait a minute. Did you see that? Go back to verse 16 and look again. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Is that what we wanted? We said, we're paraphrasing it our way. We'll do it our way. This is what we would say. Fill their faces with dishonor and wipe them out from all existence forever and ever. It's not what the psalmist said. Isn't that powerful? Just to stop and see that? That they may seek your name, O Lord. He's not done. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish. That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. All right, that psalm is full of turbulence, isn't it? That whole thing makes you just, woohoo, this is a tough one. Now, start into the next psalm and watch the difference. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The birds also have found a house, the swallow a nest for herself, that she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart is the highways to Zion. Passing through the valleys of Baca, they make it a spring. Early rains cover it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, our God. I look upon the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Do you see two viewpoints here? Psalm 83, they're looking at the people around them. And look at all the chaos it puts in a heart. Psalm 84, they set their eyes on God. You see the difference it makes? The peace. The issue of trust comes up there at the very end. I said that before you this way, because when you're going through the book of James, and you're in the first six verses, 
you're looking at that first song. You see the chaos. You see the trouble. You see what the, the people have done. You've seen that they need to be dealt with. You call upon the Lord. Deal with them, Lord. Deal with them. And then you start into verse number 7, and suddenly he says, Okay, peace. Peace. Set your focus where it ought to be. Be patient. I want to show you how beautiful this section is from verse 5 through verse number 11 in James chapter 5. Verse 7 through 11. I want to notice something with you as we set this up. First of all, the command. Yes, it is a command. It's not an option. It's not a good suggestion. It's not one of those things where you say, well, I'll I'll try to get to it. The scripture says, be patient. And it doesn't say it once. Verse 7 says that. What does it say in verse 8 to do? Be patient. It says in verse 8 also, strengthen your hearts. It says in verse number 9, do not complain. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> Should we even cover that topic? Do not complain. It says do not complain. Now, actually, these commands you see, there's four of them. They all work beautifully together. Let me show it this way. The nature of the commands. We have in the Greek the privilege of, of identifying the difference between a command that is to be done immediately, right now, get started, it's urgent, because you haven't been doing it. They call that an aorist command. There's a command that says, hey, don't stop. Keep going. Keep going. Don't quit. Don't quit. That's a present command. I prefer that one, to tell the truth, because it implies you are doing it. But you might be getting weak, and you might be getting tired. And Scripture will come alongside and just kind of keep pushing you that way, because you're doing it right, so don't stop. Three of these are commands in the aorist form. Start right now, because you're not doing it. Guess what they are? Be patient. Be patient. Strengthen your heart. James readers hadn't been doing that. They hadn't been doing that. That implies an awful lot about the first six verses. (laughs) But here's the one that's interesting to me. The last one, complaining is a present tense command. Do not keep on complaining. What does that imply? Oh, that's painful. (laughs) The problem is they must have been. Here's the thing. They're complaining on one side and they're not patient on the other. I don't know what your mirror is starting to look like, but mine is getting kind of scary. Let's walk through this for a minute. All of these suggest dependence. They're indicators of of, uh, the examination of our faith. Be patient, he says. Now, I know as a parent you've used that word at least once with the children. Be patient. Be patient, he says it twice. Be patient. But let's qualify it a little bit. How long? 
both of them give us that definition too. They, they give us that, the duration. What is it? In verse number 7? Until when? The coming of the Lord. Well, that sounds like a long time. Let's look at the second one. Verse number 8. Maybe this one's better. Be patient, strengthen your heart. How long? Until the coming of the Lord again. Well, it says it's near. But still, it's based on the coming of the Lord, right? So we say, okay, let's look at verse number 9. What about this complaining one? What is the thing that sets this one out as to the issue of time? The last phrase. The judge is standing at the door. Now, each one, it seems to me like the coming is getting closer <laughs> with his thoughts. Oh, he's coming. Oh, he's coming here. He's standing right here. The judge is at the door. But either way, who are we waiting on? The Lord, right? We're waiting on the Lord. Nothing happens until he comes to deal with the issue that we're looking at. It's got to wait until he comes. That's hard. It's hard for us sometimes. When I was younger, we had, well, this was our tradition in our home. We opened our gifts on Christmas Eve. Loved that. That was fun. Then we could stay up all night long and play with anything we had. We, it was great. We were dropping off at 2 or 3 in the morning. That was perfect for my mom's strategy. Because then we were out of her way all morning long so she could make Christmas dinner. But that was this trick. She, they gave us our gifts in the evening. So we thought that was great. Well, my, my older sister had invited her boyfriend to come share in the gift giving. We could not open gifts till he arrived. He was late. We were mad. We stood there in the window waiting and waiting. You could see all the way down the street. And you're waiting for headlights to come around the corner. We're thinking, what is wrong with this guy? On and on and on. The waiting was tough. I still remember it to this day. I was a little guy. What it was like to wait for him to come. He didn't last long, by the way. Not that we got rid of him that night, but that's just the way it was. Patience. Look at the illustration of the passage. Patience of a farmer. You guys know that. The patience of a prophet. The patience of Job. We're going to walk through those illustrations, but not today. I want to deal with what is very significant for us to start with here, because I've given you some of the background, some of the things that go with, with this. The word patient, verse 7, verse number 8, shows up again in verse number 10, when it talks about the suffering and patience of the prophets, for one. That word is macrothumia. That's a noun form. Macrothumio is a verb form. Macro. Long. Large. In duration. The opposite is micro. Which is small or short. You know micro. This afternoon, if you put your dinner in the macro oven, you're going to be there a long time. All right? They don't sell those things because nobody's got the patience to work with them, do they? 
a macro oven that doesn't exist. That'd be terrible. A microwave is what we like. Thumio is the second part of it. It's the word we get thermos or thermal. It's related to heat. Usually in reference to passion, and heat and passion together suggests anger or wrath. So the definition could be long on wrath. Not wrath for a long time. But what we would say in our vernacular, they have a long fuse. A long time before some activity, the waiting concept in that is tough. That's part of patience, is the word wait. Sometimes we speak of it as a long time before responding to something. Here's the thing. How quick we are to defend ourselves anymore. How quick we are to answer because we think there's wit or there's wisdom or there's authority in a very fast answer. So somebody says something and boom, if you're not right on it, then they, they discredit you. We live in an interesting day and age because we're so quick with things. Patience has so little value in our society. Very little value. Reactions are very quick and often misguided, often inaccurate, often in complete ignorance. We talk about hotheads, we talk about short fuses, we talk about quick-tempered. Those are all in contrast to the word patience. They're all in contrast to it. The Strong's Concordance says patience is to be long-spirited, that is, forbearing, bearing long, long-suffering, uh, being patient, or patiently enduring something. Scripture says that the nature of God's love is patience. Do you know that? The nature of God's love is patience. Love is patient. Love is kind. Where am I pulling that from? 1 Corinthians 13. God's description of what His love looks like. The nature of Christian ministry, especially dealing with those who are difficult, is patience. Timothy, or, or the Thessalonians were told by Paul, the leadership, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.14. That's the nature of ministry, even in hard situations. It's the nature of God's own servant to be patient. This is what Timothy was told. 2 Timothy 2.24 The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, and patient when wronged. That's a tough one. It's the nature of the Holy Spirit's work in you to be patient. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. What did I just define for you? This is the way God works. This is the way God works. Let me go backwards. As a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. True? Yes. He is your source of patience. 
That's his fruit. That's his fruit. I want to underscore this for you. Because if you think you're going to manufacture patience any other way from any other source, you do not have a legitimate patience. <laughs> you have a manufactured, you have a man-made patience. And that's only as good as man is. Do you like that? No, you don't. It's a fraud. The only source for the believer's patience truly is from the Holy Spirit. As a servant, we are to exemplify Christ in our actions, right? He served and he says, now do it this way. And he showed us that in Scripture. We do not fight. We are not mean. We are not arrogant. We are not ignorant. We do not lose our patience. Even when wronged. How quickly our words betray us in this. Because when Jesus was wrong, it said he opened not his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So if we're going to be like him, as a servant, we must be patient. As a workman in the church fellowship, working with brothers and sisters who are being conformed to the image of Christ, the ministry must be with patience, because that's the way God is working. It's God's kind service to us. He's been patient with us so many times, hasn't He been? Why is it that we're so, we find it so difficult to be patient with other people that He's working on too? That's the nature of His work. And those who appreciate God's love and seek to duplicate it, we are aware that this is not the typical love that the world is talking about. We're talking about God's kind of love. And God's kind of love shows patience. It shows patience. It operates His way. It is obviously His love when it's that kind of patience. It's not ours. It's not the way the world manufactured it either. All this to say, you ready? The real test of a believer's faith is first in the department of patience. It's in the department of patience. Our response to any situation, especially the first six verses of this chapter, reveals who it is we are trusting. Who are we trusting? So that's our first point. I wanted to make two points. That's the first point. The first point is just to define patience. The second one is to remember the facts. Remember the facts. Chapter 5, verse 11. Look at the very last phrase. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. These are not just suggestions of his character. They are statements of his character. I think we should be thankful that it's true. <laughs> the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. He's dealt with us that way. In contrast, we look at his dealing with the rich and we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lord, these guys are cheating your people. And he says, brethren, be patient. They've cheated us out of our income. Be patient. 
We have prophets here who suffered in this world because of the wickedness of mankind. We have their stories all over the pages of Scripture. And what did he tell them? Be patient. Wait. Then we have Job. Most people scratch their heads and say, Job? Why Job right here? This guy lived in Sodom. What did he expect? He lived in Sodom, yes. He saw the wickedness of man every single day. Yes. And it grieved his heart. He had to live waiting, waiting, waiting. The passage we have before us says to be patient and endure because even though the wicked have a judgment day coming, the fact is still the same. The Lord is full of compassion. He doesn't base his patience on the wicked. He doesn't base patience on the circumstance. He doesn't base patience on whether things are going right for you today or wrong for you today. He bases patience on the character of God. It's not based on circumstances. It's not based on scenarios. It's based on God's character. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is important for us to understand this when we walk this way. Because scripture says, the Lord is not slow about his promise. But some people count slowness. But is patient towards you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The hard part here, I think, as we're thinking through things here, is simply trusting him for what he is doing and when he will do it. That's the word dependence. It's challenging, isn't it? Now, I just set the table for you, alright? Next week we go into the little bitty pieces that make the points as we go through here. But here's what I understand, and I'll just make the simple thought this way. As this word patience challenges our faith, and it gives us a real test, It gives us a test to see whether our faith is genuine or artificial. It's vibrant or it has faded. It's active or it is stagnant. It's exciting or it's wearisome. It's living or it's sputtering. So much more I want to illustrate for you here. Our time's up. But I think that's a good start. That's what we have to leave it for this week. And, and you can now start to set your life next to this. Your faith next to this. And ask, Lord, what are you going to teach me about this word? Patience. Holy Father, well, you know where to put your finger on the sore spot. I'm glad your word is not vague. I'm glad that it's not beating around the bush. I'm glad that it's not ignoring the obvious. When it comes to spiritual things, we need to trust you. And this is a good word for us to learn. We ask that you help us with it, for it's bigger than what we can do. We know that. And we don't want to do it our way anymore. May we learn to do it your way. Your patience. That matches your love and your ministry and your servants who make themselves out to be like Christ. Do your work in our hearts, we pray, collectively as a church, individually 
as one who belongs to you. Help us, Lord, to be more like Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, we do ask today that that's the authority by which we approach your throne, the name that gives us this right, the name that loves us, the name that forgave us of our sins. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.